Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each and every week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 362 with Mark Wainwright. Position yourself as a trusted advisor for more sales. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors. RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and so much more, all for free. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure, spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. And Gusto, the easy online payroll and benefit service built for modern small businesses like ours. In other words, a people platform. So thanks to RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto for supporting the Entree Architect community of small firm architects. Mark Wainwright, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's uh, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. This is a, going to be a very uh, interesting conversation, an important conversation about sales and some of the things that we can we can do as architects. Before we jump into that conversation, I want to introduce you. Uh, Mark Wainwright is the founder and principal of Wainwright Insight a sales consultancy to professional services firms. Mark has worked in the professional services industry for 20 years and leverages that experience to offer fractional sales management to firms who sell their expertise. He builds himself as, quote, 
a part-time sales manager for part-time salespeople like us, <laughs> like architects, advisors, engineers, analysts, and other consultants who are skilled at their craft but often lack the organization and sales acumen that firms and individuals need to win new work and grow their practice. This is going to be an important conversation. In, in my experience, sales is one of our biz, biggest weaknesses as architects. Uh, we, we resist installing a sales process sometimes, and sometimes we're just afraid of asking for that sale. Sometimes we don't even know that we're missing that piece. So I'm looking forward to this conversation, Mark. But before we jump into that conversation, I wanna know more about you, where you came from, uh, share your origin story. When did you discover the passion for what you do? Who inspired you to become who you are today? Share that journey with us here at Entree Architect Podcast. Right. Thanks, Mark. Uh, so as you mentioned in that bio, I've been working in professional services for about 20 years. Uh, I have dozens, maybe hundreds of dear friends who are architects and engineers who love their craft and work hard uh, and throughout the years, I just sensed that there was a piece missing in their work uh, that, uh, you know, they had marketing folks on staff and, and you know, I, I came from that world. I was a marketing manager, marketing director for architecture and engineering firms. Uh, and I always developed really close relationships with my colleagues and wanted to help them through these, you know, challenging sales processes, but uh, really the only thing I participated in as a marketing person was in that, you know, proposal uh, work, uh, but I really wasn't present in those kind of day-to-day -day kind of micro interactions that they would have with their clients, uh, possibly discussing prospective work. So I wasn't really engaged in that at all. And I felt that I had an opportunity to help. So I've worked uh, with, like I mentioned, architects, engineers, uh, economic analysts, financial advisors in marketing agencies. So all different types of firms who sell their expertise and uh, a critical piece, like you mentioned, that's missing often is the recognition uh, of the importance of selling your services and, you know, selling has changed over the years and we're still kind of working through that hangover of, you know, the pushy salesperson. So, you know, that, that was my sort of mission to let's put that to rest. Let's get ourselves past that salesy uh, uh, approach and, and, and get to a point where uh, uh, very truly that sales is helping. Yeah, I, I think very often when you think of a salesperson, you think of that sort of slick, gonna trick you into buying something kind of guy, right? And, and it's not like that anymore, right? There's, there's ways of working with, uh, with potential clients and uh, everybody winning. And, and uh, I, I, that's something that I struggled with as a young architect, I, and I didn't even realize it, like you said. It was a missing piece in my firm for years before I realized that my wife and I are both architects. We started our own firm really early. We were 29 when we launched our firm. and. Uh, and we just launched and started doing what we do. And uh, we plateaued after a few years and, uh, and we didn't know why. So I took a, a course called the, uh, the Academy of Entrepreneurial Excellence at a community college. And it was 15 weeks and every week we went to, to, to class and it was a different piece, which is actually the Entree Architect Academy is, is based on what I learned there in terms of structure. Um, and every week there was a new topic. So we went through 15 topics of business 
And every week I would come home to Anne Marie and say, yeah, we're doing that right. We're good. You know, check that one off. And right, the next right. one would come and it would be marketing. And it would be like, yeah, we're doing that right. And, and which was great, right? We were doing all these things right. But we were also starting to get frustrated because we were doing everything right. And we were plateauing. We weren't getting the sales we were looking for. And when we hit sales, <laughs> I came right. home and said, guess what, Anne Marie? We're not selling. We're not selling at all. We are great marketers. The whole county knows who we are. You know, we have great clients, um, but but we have no sales process at all. And mm-hmm. and that's when everything changed. Once I realized that and and established the simple sales process, and so uh, I can attest to that. It is something that architects tend to forget or don't even know they're missing. You know, they think that they're doing a great job marketing, uh, but but there's another step after the people know who you are. Right. And, and, uh, you know, what I mentioned earlier about sales has changed. I think the two main drivers behind that, uh, are the kind of wide availability of information, uh, and, um, you know, just, uh, you know, when you needed a 20, 30, 50 years ago, whatever it was, when you needed a new appliance, you would go to right. Fill in the blank. Sears. Sears. Right. You, yeah. Right. Yeah. Sure. You'd yeah. go to Sears. Right. And, and, and you didn't know uh, any any information about these uh, appliances, whatever it may be, and and the salesperson they could be a good salesperson or not, it didn't matter, uh, and they were in complete control because they had all the information uh, that uh, they needed, and often they'd just steer you to the model that was on sale or the one they were trying to push that week, uh, and you'd head home uh, with your appliance, and you had no, you know. Uh, additional information beyond that, maybe the glossy brochure you would pick up somewhere, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the broad availability, uh, availability now of information kind of completely flip that on its head. Now, uh, you can go and do your research, uh, uh, you know, on, and you can buy stuff online, you can buy things without ever, you know, and this is, I'm kind of talking about consumer products here, but, you know, if we're, um, if we don't believe that cons- the consumer tendencies and, and consumer buying influences the purchasing of, you know, even complex professional services, um, I think we're wrong. I think we're off on that. I, I think that, uh, you know, just the buying uh, world in general uh, is, is changing. Uh, and, you know, the other huge factor is, is that choice has exploded. You know, now buyers, regardless of what they're buying, have uh, greater choice. You know, like I said before, you would go to Sears and that was your choice to buy your, your appliance. But now um, you have myriad uh, options uh, and uh, that choice doesn't allow the salesperson to be pushy, salesy, um, you know, wanting to, to force the situation or convince uh, or cajole, you know, uh, uh, buyers can just shift. They can go elsewhere. And I think that applies to all professional services. Yeah, I mean, as soon as somebody feels uncomfortable, they'll just go somewhere else, right? And and sure. And the and so the, your so your option there is is to help. So you're left with the only thing you can possibly do is help. You can help guide someone who's possibly never purchased this complex professional service before. Uh, you can help navigate them through the selling and buying process. So you're a guide. You know, you become less of a you know, pushy salesperson and you're, you're a guide, you know, you're the one that uh, can help them through, uh, you know, you can ask the right questions, uh, you know, you can propose, uh, uh, you know, approaches 
that are specifically relevant to the to their needs, and you can provide options so you can help them kind of co-create uh, a solution. So, um, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's it's your your role as a as a part-time salesperson to be a guide. Yeah. So, how do you do that? We it's, let's let's say we we've we built out a great website, right? They they know who we are, what we do, how we resonate with them. Um, they they want to work with us, right? And so and and they're interested in what we do, and so they contact us and say, okay what's the process? What, how do we go from they're interested to a signed contract? Right. Uh, uh, you know, I think as experts and, you know, I'll go pretty high level on this, right. As experts, I think we want to, um, kind of impress, uh, the, our prospective, uh, clients with our expertise. So I think that, um, most individuals feel that very early on, we need to impress upon someone that we have command of our craft. And I think that is legitimate. Uh, I think it's a legitimate part of the process, but I do think it, it comes later. You know, I, uh, um, I pull wisdom from many sources and, and uh, uh, Amy Cuddy uh, is, a, is a, a, a wonderful author and a speaker and she's got some great wisdom and, and there's, there's others. Um, uh, Charlie Green, uh, you know, who, who with David Maester wrote um, The Trusted Advisor. and you know, uh, in, in those books, they talk a lot about trust and character and competence. And, and uh, one thing I talk with my clients about is if you introduce competence too early on without establishing rapport and character, then, you know, on your path to trust, because I think that character and competence are two very important components of trust. If you introduce competence too early in the process without establishing that character, uh, people can come off kind of suspicious and leery uh, that you're uh, you're boastful and you're in, you're, you're in this for yourself and you, and you're, um, you have a disregard for their specific needs. But I think if you attempt to establish rapport and connection, uh, then they're more open and ready to receive your competence, you know, and I plot this out on a, on a two by two matrix as I talk it through, but, uh, I think it's critical. And I think we overlook the point that we do have to be human and we have to build rapport initially so that the, the people on the other end of the conversation are receptive to our expertise. And that's, yeah. you know, and that flies in the face of anything you've assumed to be important in sales. You know, people have always assumed that, well, I, I, I just need to come in and assert my expertise and overwhelm them with experience and knowledge. Uh, and and th they'll have no other option than to just, you know, pick us, you know, because we have an over overwhelming level of, of, of competence, but I think that, you know, establishing character, um, first, uh, is critical. Yeah. That's very interesting. Cause I think so many of us instinctively want to share, uh, our expertise that we're proud of the work that we've done to get to where we are and, and the, the projects that we've done and the clients that are happy and we just want to show them how good we are. Um, right. but, uh, that's very interesting that if we share that too soon, that we are the expert, we know what we're doing, just trust us, we can take care of it. Um, they tend to turn off and they, they tend to tend to resist that. So you say we should build rapport before we do that. How do we do that? How do we go from being that person who wants to share our expertise uh, and, and sort of do some of those initial pieces uh, prior? Are those meetings or those... Touch, how touch points? I mean, how do we do that? 
Sure. You know, and, and when we talk about, about sales and marketing, uh, both of those kind of pieces of the puzzle have to, you know, uh, have that posture. And the posture I'm talking about is, is a posture of, of being helpful. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, and two words I use that make professionals uncomfortable. I use curiosity and intimacy. And uh, I think both are, are, are critical, but when we're talking about um, sales and we're talking about curiosity and intimacy, I think that curiosity um, puts us in the right posture to want to just learn more, make no assumptions, uh, make, uh, make no, no, no guesses at what someone's going to want or need, but in a very sort of baseline, you know, sense of, you know, from a very curious level, uh, uh, we ask very genuine questions. We ask about their situation and their needs and, and their aspirations and their goals and their hopes. Uh, and if we do this early on in the process, um, uh, it just brings us closer and it brings us to that other word of intimacy, right? I mean, we're early on in the process, since this is uh, a lot of times in these complex professional services, we're going to be you know, working together in a very close relationship for a long period of time it's really important that we develop some sort of closeness and we should start early on. Uh, and your sense of curiosity helps you move towards uh, greater intimacy, um, uh, which a product of that is, is trust. Uh, and then, you know, like I said earlier, when you're uh, starting to discuss your specific expertise, your specific approach uh, to the, to the needed work and, fees and compensation and things, then it's a more open, more human conversation. So those, you know, that, that curiosity and intimacy um, uh, are two sort of huge parts of this uh, initial relationship development. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, so when we get to the point where we do share our uh, knowledge and expertise, are we doing that sort of strategically? All right, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and at this point, this is where I do this. Or do we wait for them to request that information? Right. Yeah. That's. Uh, I would say, and you know, I, you know, I probably generalize a bit too much, but I would say, in general, uh, we propose approaches and solutions, and just put proposals into the process way too early. Uh, we have, you know, our expertise is our leverage as experts. So we have to hold that expertise as long as, you know, is reasonably possible throughout the, the, the process so that the, the recipients of that is ready for it. They're asking for it. They're prepared to receive it and they're prepared to, um, and able to push and pull and mold it and co-create it. And I think we don't offer, we present to, we, throw these proposals, we put, uh, you know, attach a PDF to an email and just throw it over the wall and hope for the best. Uh, yeah. And we, we offer too few options. There's some really smart people out there that, that do fabulous work on proposal strategy, fee strategy, you know, and, and uh, if, if, we, if we provide the opportunity for, you know, the work to be done and the, 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 the pricing and the fees involved to be, you know, uh, co-created uh, and manipulated and pushed and pulled a little bit by both parties, we end up with a much more successful situation where both can be, you know, kind of ultimately successful. So I think we, I think we propose too early and I think the proposals that are sent uh, are done so not in person, but via email and they don't provide enough um, 
you know, enough options, you know, they are, they are filled with assumption, um, which to a certain degree we have to expect from, from, from experts. Experts have to use their knowledge to make certain assumptions that the buyer hasn't asked for or requested or listed as specific needs, uh, you know, in their initial request. But uh, we can't take those assumptions too far, um, you know, because if we're proposing 3X and the reality was is that X was required, uh, then we're going to end up, you know, on the on the wrong end of things in our, you know, what they need versus what we're going to provide is there's a there's a huge gap between those two things. We will return to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, FreshBooks, Gusto, and Arcat. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, but trying to figure out our financials on our own? No, it's not one of them. Luckily, there's FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for businesses like ours. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business, from building and tracking invoices to organizing expenses to managing online payments, takes all of that and automates it and simplifies it, saving you up to 11 hours a week in the process. FreshBooks has your back at tax time, too. With a ton of reports to choose from, you'll know exactly where your business stands, and you can easily hand the keys off to your accountant so they can take over when it's time to reconcile everything for the year. So try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com architect and enter Entree Architect in the how did you hear about us section so they know that you came from Entree Architect. That's freshbooks.com architect and let them know that you're a member of the Entree Architect community. Running an architecture business is hard. Endless to-do lists, employees to take care of, and your ever-present bottom line. So first of all, kudos to you for staying on top of all of it. And as a listener of the Entree Architect podcast, by now you already know about our friends at Gusto. Gusto built an easier and more affordable way to manage payroll, benefits, and more. They help over 100,000 businesses with tasks like automated payroll tax filing, simple direct deposits, free health insurance administration, 401ks, onboarding tools, you name it, Gusto made it easy. And they really care about the small business owners they work with. Their support team is attentive and helpful. And since money can be tight right now, you'll even get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com architect and start setting up your business today. And you'll see what I mean when I say easy. Again, that's three months of free payroll at gusto.com slash architect. You're going to love Gusto. Get started today at gusto.com slash architect. We are well underway here in 2021 and still no word from most trade shows. We can't wait around for news on which event is proceeding, which is postponed again and which are canceled. We still need our continuing education credits. And let's not wait until December like we did last year. Let's start planning right now. How are we going to get our 2021 continuing education credits? Our friends at RCAT can help. Along with manufacturer product information, specifications, CAD and BIM, all free by the way, 
RCAT also provides a list of over 150 manufacturers with accredited continuing education courses. Start earning those credits today at RCAT.com CES. It's another free resource RCAT provides to make your life easier. Free continuing education credits. Available now at RCAT.com CES. That's RCAT.com CES. Fresh Books, Gusto, and RCAT. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. I think the listeners are starting to realize that there's a process here. <laughs> that right. there's, there, there's, there's a system to build and it's a pretty complex system, right? You, there's there's uh, multiple steps and there's bench point, you know, benchmarks and you need to get to a certain point before you can do some certain things and which is w- exactly why someone like you could be very helpful as a consultant. You could come in, sort of figure out the process that they go through, and 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 put to help put together that that system. Right, right. The the uh, the process is is you know a, a very important part of of what I do and what sales managers do in general. They you know build a an organized rigorous sales process, and you know, and there's a logic to it and it's not fuzzy. And, and, uh, you know, the, the great thing I'll, as an aside, the great thing about a process is most sort of left brained technical professionals, our friends, our dear friends, architects, engineers, and others uh, who have a hard time getting their head wrapped around sort of the fuzzy, you know, unclear nature of sales really respond positively to an organized rigorous sales process because yeah. there's steps and there's organization and there's rigor. Uh, and, and so, so I think that the fog starts to clear when we introduce a process and they say, Oh, okay. So we have these milestones and we have these steps and, and, and these, you know, go, no go steps where, you know, we have to hit these certain milestones in our process in this, you know, discussion uh, with this prospective client or we cannot proceed. Yeah. And it also saves a lot of time because you're not wasting a lot of time. And we don't have a lot of time as small firm architects. We're doing everything. Right. And, and uh, most folks don't really you know, take into account the cost of sale you know, and, and the amount of time invested pre-contract that, isn't, that you're not compensated for uh, you know, can be massive in some, in some cases. Uh, you know, significant pursuits that are competitive, uh, you know, that you, know, you invest sometimes hundreds of hours in the proposal development and then eventually maybe an interview process uh, and then it doesn't go your way, uh, those are devastating. You're not just emotionally, deeply emotionally invested in these, these efforts. You are financially invested in these efforts. And, you know, one of my, uh, uh, you know, one of the, one of my priorities when I work with my clients uh, is we're going to pay a much greater, uh, 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 amount of uh, time and energy and, and focus on our current clients uh, and on our recent clients and uh, uh, on clients uh, with whom, you know, aren't going to put us through a competitive uh, process. You know, folks that, uh, you know, we can work with them, you know, on a sole source capacity without competition involved. And we need to, over time, we need to increase the percentage of dollars that are coming from those types of pursuits 
to balance out the necessary evil of these expensive competitive pursuits. Uh, you know, when you're a, most firms think that that's their best option. You know, we're just going to throw our hat in the ring and chase after these really prospective long shots. Uh, and, and they don't pan out and they've spent a whole bunch of money, you know, and time and, you know, and I don't talk about labor dollars, you know, I talk about, you know, opportunity cost and what is the, what could you otherwise be doing with those right. hours, right? You could be billing those hours. You could be chasing after other pursuits that are much more probable. Uh, so there's a huge opportunity cost in those, in those pursuits. So, you know, that is my preference. I, I, I prefer that my clients spend, invest more time in these non-competitive pursuits and less time in the, in the ones that are expensive and, and prospective and uh, sometimes don't go the right way. Yeah. It, it would be interesting to track that pre-sale process and how much time we spent and, and literally convert it to dollars. Uh, right. And so we can see that, that number. Right. Um, the economy is slowing, right? We're, 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 we've just been through a pretty dramatic shutdown of the world and, uh, and that no doubt will turn into uh, a recession as architects start to prepare for that. And, um, at the, the supply starts to, uh, overwhelm the demand and there are fewer projects out there. What are some of the things that small firm architects can do to prepare for that and, and maybe put together some strategies that can help us uh, win more of those projects that as they become fewer opportunities out there? Right. I, I, I think, uh, you know, you, you have to you have to pull your pull those who are close to you closer. You know, I, I, I don't think, you know, because if you if you look at the alternatives, uh, and the alternatives, you can kind of boil them down to we're going to chase after, you know, these far reaching competitive pursuits that are highly prospective where we have thready connections uh, and our expertise is, uh, you know, not, not what our competitors expertise is relative to this specific opportunity. Um, you know, you can choose that path and, you know, spend a lot of money and be increasingly frustrated or you can, you know, double down on uh, your clients who have been near and dear for you for years uh, and, and see how you can continue to serve them better, you know, have really in-depth conversations about, you know, previous work that maybe there were issues that were unresolved. How can you resolve those together? Um, what opportunities are for the, you know, for you to do small bits and pieces of projects that otherwise would not be possible uh, uh, to bite off the whole thing right now with, you know, uh, a, a kind of sketchy economic situation. So, you know, I start to look closer and closer and most firms start to look further and further, you know, down the road or, you know, out on the horizon. So, uh, you know, it's, I, I always recommend my firm start pulling those who are close to them closer. Um, you know, and it's not novel, you know, that we chase the novelty, the grass is greener, right? We want the new shiny, shiny, right? So I, I think that, um, chasing after the same old clients and continuing to foster and build those relationships, you know, loses its luster over time. But I think it's necessary specifically in times like this, you yeah. know, where, where, um, yeah, boy, yeah, there's, you know, uh, the, the uptick happens in these prospective pursuits and just the dollars start flowing and, and frustration increases. And you don't need that amount of frustration stacked on top of all the other frustrations that we have today. Yeah. 
What 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 about firms that don't have those recurring recurring clients? Residential architects, small business firms that that's you know uh, firms that serve small businesses and small office work. What do you, what, what what do we do when we don't have that opportunity to go and serve clients? Once we serve them, you know that that project's done. Right, right. I, you know, and, and and that's a that's a, a great question. Uh, you know, r- your your residential client isn't going to need a, a, a second new house immediately, right? Particularly in an, in an environment, uh, you know, economic situation that we're in right now. But if you served them well, and if the end product was uh, uh, well received, and 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 they love it, you know, there is no reason why you cannot leverage that relationship to other people for introductions and referrals and additional connections. You know, uh, one of the one of the things that I do with uh, uh, my clients is we do a account development planning where we sit down and take a deep breath and really focus closely on our most important clients. And we explore the quality of the relationship who, you know, if it's a, if it's a, a commercial client, maybe there are people at that commercial client that we know and others that we don't know. Um, and we need to, you know, make those new connections. Um, you know, what is their business what are their business goals? What are their future plans? How can we understand and align ourselves with those future plans? You know, and, and it's even possible to do these types of in-depth, uh, focused account plans, even with you know, single-family residential clients. You can understand, you, know, you can say, okay, so who did we work with on that project? Who are our partners, uh, other consultants that we worked with, and, and what conversations are we having with them related to that work and how can we spiral off of that? Um, who, uh, who is the owner, uh, you know, who is the client connected to? Who does, who does that, who could that person connect us to? Who could they refer us to? You know, how, where can we get more and more conversations? And there's nobody better to refer you than a, than a, you know, a, a long time satisfied, satisfied client. So, yeah. you know, that, that's, that's, you know, and it just takes the time to sit down and focus on that, you know, and, and sales is not, you know, sales needs some, some urgency and energy and frankly, some hustle, but you do need to go slow before you go fast. Right. And doing specific planning uh, is one of those examples of where you go slow before you go fast. Right. And you can plan for um, specific accounts. Uh, You can be, be more deliberate and planful with your specific opportunities that are in front of you. Um, and you can plan, you can plan for, uh, calls. You can do planning for specific, these just micro conversations that you're going to have with prospective clients. How, how does that work? You talked about planning calls. How, how does, how do they do that? Right. Well, you know, call planning is a common practice in the world of sales, right? This is what salespeople do. And this is what their sales managers uh, you know, kind of demand of them is that they approach these conversations that they have with prospective clients very seriously, right? Because, th- you know, this is their craft. This is what they do. So um, call planning. And when I say call planning, I use the word call. It could be a phone call. It could be a, you know, a, a Zoom conversation. It could be a face-to-face meeting. So I use the, the term call very generically, but a call plan has a handful of very important steps, right? And this is a, this is something that's, that's done in advance of these conversations. It's, it's hopefully best done with two people. You know, I do these call plans with individuals who are having these, you know, what I consider high stakes conversations, you know, with prospective clients. Um, 
So we sit down and we'll run through a fairly prescriptive, you know, planning template. You know, that includes, uh, you know, includes the following, right? It's, it's, you have to set your, your objective, right? You have to, you have to be clear, you know, what your, what your end goal is for this conversation. What do you want to get out of this? You know, and a lot of people think, well, it's a sales call. I want to get a contract, right? <laughs> right. But Obviously. <laughs> and, and that would be right. That would be wonderful. But the, but the reality is, is that if you're paying attention, you know, to a sales process and you know that there are incremental steps on your way to a contract, then you have to be reasonable in your objectives. You know, you have to say, well, look, this is our very first time that we're going to talk. My objective is to build rapport and assess fit. You know, that is what we do during a qualification conversation is that we, we assess the appropriateness of the relationship. Can we both be mutually successful? You know, do they value the, the work that, you know, uh, we provide, you know, and is, is there, is there an, uh, an initial rapport? Um, you know, can we work on a long-term uh, project with this individual? So, you know, your qualifying conversations are, are, are of that nature. Your discovery calls are subsequent calls where you have different different goals um, where you want to dig deep, you know, and ask more and more questions. Um, but the call plan, right? So there's you're setting your objective uh, and being reasonable. Uh, it's doing your due diligence and background research and having that at the ready. You know, what can you find out if it's a business? What can you find out about, you know, like I said before, their organizational goals and their uh, future plans? If it's a, you know, individual, maybe a homeowner, uh, you know, what can, what background is available online? Um, you know, what, what types of information did they provide ahead of time prior to your conversation that you could, you know, dig into? Um, and the, the, the next part is the most important part of a call plan, which is what questions are you going to ask, right? I think in preparation for these sales calls, I think most experts and many people in general think, what am I going to show? What am I going to say? What am I going to tell them? You know, but the most important part of this is what questions are you going to ask? And it goes back to what I said earlier about that curiosity, right? Is yeah. it how can I how can I come into this conversation and just incredibly curious about who this individual is, what they value, you know, what they hold most dear, um, what their what their goals are, um, you know, how they how do they like to work, you know, all of those different things. And if you can come into a conversation with a handful of questions. You know, if you have 60 minutes scheduled for a call and you only talk for about 10 minutes or so, then you've won. You've been successful, you know, to get the, get the, get the prospective client to talk most of the time is critical, not just because you're gaining that information, but because you've displayed a desire to understand them more deeply, right? And when they leave that call, they'll have in their mind that, oh, that person really cared about me. They ask a lot of questions and they really care about what my needs and desires and wants are. So, you know, that's a, that, that's an easy metric to hit, right? If they talked most of the time during that initial call, then you've won, right? So the other parts are, if you're going to talk about yourself, right, you need to have kind of a client success story in your back pocket, which you can relay to them. It needs to be something relevant, uh, you know, to who they are or what their needs are. But, you know, a client success story should, you should be able to relate that in, you know, 60 seconds or, you know, two minutes, you know, this was the, this was another client I worked with in a similar situation as you, this is what their needs were. This is how we address that. And the end result is this, right? You can just work through that very easily. Uh, and that's all right. There's no slides. There's no long winded yeah. explanation of your work and everything. It's just telling them, you know, that that situation needs solution and results 
kind of client story uh, is really, really powerful. It so sounds, it sounds like there's that, that's also a little seed of introducing your expertise without right. throwing it at them. Without throwing it at them, right? Oh, interesting. Tell me more about that story. You know, last time we talked, you mentioned that story about the Smiths. I'd love to hear more about that. Great. So they're asking for more information. So you, yeah. if you're going to talk about, about yourself, you do it in that format. You do it very briefly. And then the last part of this, uh, of your call preparation is, what is our desired next step, right? And you're going to set your specific desired next step and you are not going to get off of that call without setting the next step, right? And it's because you, you have to create a daisy chain of connection, activity, in order to really move this opportunity forward, right? If those links of the chain break, you know, then you've lost track. Oh, I, you know, we had a call. We didn't really set a next step. It's, you know, I talked to him three weeks ago. I'm not really sure what we're going to do next, what we're going to talk about. You know, that is a leading indicator that this is going to be an unsuccessful, you know, relationship, right? There's a, there's, there's a, a momentum and an energy in successful sales conversations, you know, that, that build on each other. You know, if you don't talk to someone for two months and you feel like when you finally get another call scheduled with them, that you have to rehash everything you talked about last time in order to catch everyone up to speed. And you do that over and over again, you're never advancing the conversation. So, you know, there's an energy you need to set next steps. And that sounds kind of uncomfortable and a little pushy, but you know, like I mentioned earlier, you're the guide right? This is, it is your job because maybe this person's never purchased your specific services before, so they don't know how to do it, right? So if you are really the guide in this and helping them through the buying and selling process, then you need to, you need to assert that. Look, we should, we should set a next step in this, you know, and our next step together, because we've been through this qualifying conversation, it seems at least to us that, you know, to in this conversation that, um, it would be great to work together. It seems like your needs align with what we can do. And I really feel like if we work together, we can be successful. So I'd love to schedule a next conversation and really dig in deeper, you know, uh, to understand more about what your specific needs are. And only then can we propose something, right? There's a logic to this, right? After you've gained a deeper understanding of what their needs are, then you can propose, Right. And, and so that discovery conversation is critical in that because then the proposal comes and the proposal comes in a way that's bespoke and relevant uh, and, and seeks to address their specific needs that you learned in that discovery conversation. Right. So there's our process that we're starting to set in. Um, and it's, and it's, it's powerful. And that's a call plan. Right. Uh, and it should take you 15 minutes to run through it. You get your piece of paper or your document up and you run through that template. Um, and it, it, it's, it's not that, uh, you know, you're going to be able to uh, be successful hundred percent of the time, uh, or that it always works or it's a silver bullet, but increases, it increases the probability of success and it significantly increases your confidence level, right? That is key. If you are prepared, you are more yeah. confident, right? Yeah. hundred percent. And it's, it's, that's so valuable what you just shared. So objective. So have an objective, do your research, prepare your questions, have a client success story in your back pocket so you have some, some information to share and make sure that you understand what your next step is, what your objective is for the next step uh, and get that documented and, and agreed upon. That's what we're going to do in the next step. Yeah, that's it. That's a, that's a call plan. And it's, you know, like I said, it's not rocket science and you could, you could go look up information on call plans and they all kind of have similar components. 
but it's just something that's never really been recognized as that people haven't seen that it's that, it's that missing piece, right? That missing piece of the puzzle that we talked about that, um, you know, the part-time salespeople out there, um, you know, who maybe embrace that term begrudgingly, you know, <laughs> it's, it's one of the, one of the things they've been missing, you know? Um, yeah. So, so it, it's a powerful, it's a powerful tool. And that's, you know, that's one aspect of planning. And there's many other aspects of sales planning that, you know, increase your probability of success and just help you be more confident. Yeah. And, and that's part of the process, right? That part of the systems that we need right. to put in place that many of us don't have. You can also see through what Mark's uh, sharing here, how much different it is from that pushy salesman that we talked about in the beginning. Right. Right? None of that is pushy, right? right? That is preparing to have a civil uh, empathetic conversation with your with your pot potential prospect and how you potentially could help them, guide them through the process, right? And you, this process is documented and planned. And so so it's an easy process, right? They feel comfortable that they're in, in the right hands with you. Right. You can see how it leads to a sale where a client wants to do anything they can to, to sign a contract with you to have them do your project because right. you've led them through this process. So interesting, very, very interesting. Um, very, very valuable, Mark. I appreciate that. Um, before we wrap things up, actually, before I ask you the last question, I wanted—I just one other thought popped into my head about the the, the recession and the pandemic. Many of the architects in our community um, have experienced that their industry has gone away during this. Right? They have the the aviation uh, industry. You have the the hospitality industry. There were firms that were focused on just that market, right? And their market went away uh, and it's going to take a long time to get that back. Do you have any suggestions? And I know this is sort of a completely different conversation and, and maybe if it goes too deep, we'll <laughs> come back for a second right. conversation. But do you have some advice for people who need to shift markets and start completely new with a different market? Right, that's... Uh you know, there's 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 some recent conversations I think happening around expertise uh, and generalists, and uh, you know David C. Baker and Blair Enns, you know, have yeah. a, who have a great podcast. Have had some recent podcasts about this content, uh, and you know, there's a battle between expertise and generalists that's not just happened recently; it's been going on for for a long time. You know, if 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 you can look at what I do, you can tell that I think that being uh, you know focused. Yeah, um, is is really important to your long term success. I know in the short term it's 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 hard, and yeah. uh, uh, it's likely that now people will need to say yes to more things that they would otherwise not uh, not say yes to. Uh, but I think sort of the long term success of a professional services firms is constantly refining um, their expertise and their area of focus. So. I don't tend to recommend that firms become unfocused. You know, there are changes, you know, there are geographic changes maybe that are, that are needed. You know, maybe you just need to draw a bigger circle. You know, you need to be having more conversations in, in places that you never thought you'd be having conversations. I mean, that's happened to, to me. I mean, this, uh, you know, this pandemic has driven changes in everyone's business. And it's hard to call those changes positive because it's attached to such a, you know, such a, a devastating situation. Um, but, you know, my geographic reach used to be centered in the Pacific Northwest. And now I do work with clients coast to coast. Yeah. Um, just because the vehicle that I used to work with my clients has changed radically. I thought I wanted to have an in-person model because I enjoy that the most. But 
now that we're forced to have virtual models, I can do my work anywhere with anyone. Uh, so my, my, you know, my specific focus on, you know, being a part-time sales manager for part-time salespeople and professional services firms, you know, that hasn't changed, but my geographic spread has. So okay. yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's where I go with that. I don't, I don't, uh, yeah, I think the long game is, you know, experts, um, who focus, uh, win. Yeah. And we agree. I mean, we, we, that's exactly what Entree Architect has taught for a long and long time listeners of the podcast are getting sick of me saying target market, target market, right. target market, because that's your success. And, yeah. and I get in times like this, I get the pushback from them saying, well, look, look at what happened to the, to the healthcare industry. Look what happened, well, not the healthcare industry, but look what happened to the hospitality industry and right. what happened to the aviation industry. If I was in that market, I'm dead, but no, you're not dead. Take those expertise that you've built a brand around and go leverage them with another market because the, the, the expertise can be what you leverage rather right. than the market. Right, right, yeah, I like that. Um, Mark, what's one thing a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll take the softball on that one and just point yeah. back to what we talked about earlier, right? It's, it's at any moment in the day, you know, some, you know, any practitioner out there can pull out a piece of paper and do a quick call plan to prepare for an important high stakes conversation that they're going to have in the next day or two. You know, it is so easy and such an, an overlooked uh, tool. And like I said, it just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't help you sort of, you know, get, get your ducks in a row and get your research done and get your questions down on a piece of paper, but it gives you greater confidence and not a confidence in, you know, uh, I'm going to drive this opportunity to, you know, a, a successful close, but it lets you be a more successful guide. Yeah. So, so valuable. This whole podcast episode has been so valuable. There's, we've gotten, touched so many different points on sales and I think right. that, that people can take a lot away from our conversation today. So I appreciate you for coming on and and spending some time and talking about it. His name is Mark Wainwright. You can learn more about him and, and his services at Wainwright Insight. Wainwright Insight. We'll have a link to that on the show notes. Um, it's W-A-I-N-W-R-I-G-H-T-I-N-S-I-G-H-T.com. Wainwright Insight, but we'll have a link on the show notes. Mark, I really, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. This is a topic that I really enjoy these days um, because early on it was something that I didn't realize I was missing. And uh, I look at business like a game. And if you learn the rules of the game, uh, you can get good at them. You can practice, right? Architecture is a practice. And if we practice at the, at the rules of the game, we can get better at them. And one of the rules that many of us are missing is how do we do sales? Right. And so there are ways that we can do sales better. And the more we practice, the better we get and the more successful we get. And so thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge today at Entree Architect Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. And, and keep up the great work. You're you're doing a great job serving a, a, a really wonderful community. So so thank you. You've been listening to episode 362 of the Entree Architect Podcast with Mark Wainwright. If you'd like to access the show notes or share this episode with a friend, the link is entrearchitect.com slash episode 362. Entree Architect is proud to be a partner with the largest, most engaged AEC multimedia network on the planet, Gable Media. We are curating thought leadership for an audience dedicated 
to building a better world. Listen and subscribe and share this with all your friends at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L Media.com. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. If you're not a member yet, what are you waiting for? Ready to edit business resources, live monthly training, the supportive architect community, and now Simple Systems, our new business system program developed for you, the small firm entrepreneur architect. It's all waiting for you right now at Entree Architect Academy membership. It's all included. Learn more about membership at EntreeArchitect.com slash join. That's EntreeArchitect.com slash join. Be well, my friends. Be happy, healthy, safe, and secure. Thank you for listening today. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected 
annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.